Chapter 108 What is the hidden influence behind the press, behind all the subversive movements going on around us? Are there several powers at work? Or is there one power, one invisible group directing all the rest? The circle of the real initiates. Nesta Webster, Secret Societies and Subversive Movements, London, Boswell, 1924, page 348. Maybe he would have forgotten his decision. Maybe it would have been enough for him just to write it. Maybe, if he had seen Lorenza again at once, he would have been caught up by desire, and desire would have forced him to come to terms with life. But instead, that Monday afternoon, Allier appeared in his office, wafting exotic cologne, smiling as he handed over some manuscripts to be rejected, saying he had read them during a splendid weekend at the seashore. Belbo, seized once more by rancor, decided to taunt Allier by giving him a glimpse of the magic bloodstone. Assuming the manner of Boccaccio's Buffa Malco, he said that for more than ten years he had been burdened by an occult secret, a manuscript entrusted to him by a certain Colonel Ardenti, who claimed to be in possession of the plan of the Templars. The Colonel had been abducted or killed, and his papers had been taken. Garamond Press had been left with a red-herring text, deliberately erroneous, fantastic, even querile, whose sole purpose was to let others know that the colonel had seen the Provins message and Ingolf's final notes, the notes Ingolf's murderers were still looking for. But there was also a very slim file, containing ten pages only, but those ten pages were the authentic text, the one really found among Ingolf's papers. They had remained in Belbo's hands. What a curious story, this was Allier's reaction. Do tell me more. Belbo told him more. He told him the whole plan, just as we had conceived it, as if it were all contained in that remote manuscript. He even told him, in an increasingly cautious and confidential tone, that there was also a policeman by the name of De Angelis, who had arrived at the brink of the truth, but had come up against the hermetic, no other way to describe it, silence of Belbo himself, keeper of mankind's greatest secret, a secret that boiled down to the secret of the map. Here he paused, in a silence charged with unspoken meaning, like all great pauses. His reticence about the final truth guaranteed the truth of its premises. For those who really believed in a secret tradition, he calculated, nothing was louder than silence. "'How interesting, how extremely interesting,' Allier said, taking the snuff-box from his vest as if his thoughts were elsewhere. "'And—and and the map?' Belbo thought. You old voyeur, you're getting aroused. Serves you right. With all your Saint-Germain airs, you're just another petty charlatan living off the shell game, and then you buy the Brooklyn Bridge from the first charlatan who's a bigger charlatan than you are. Now I'll send you on a wild goose chase looking for maps, so you'll vanish into the bowels of the earth, carried away by the telluric currents, until you crack your head against the transoceanic monolith of some Celtic valve. And very circumspectly, he replied, in the manuscript, of course, there was also the map, or rather a precise description of the map, of the original. It's surprising. You can't imagine how simple the solution is. The map was within everyone's grasp, in full view. Why, thousands of people have passed it every day for centuries. And the method of orientation is so elementary that you just have to memorize the pattern and the map can be reproduced on the spot anywhere. So simple and so unexpected. Imagine—this is just to give you an idea— 
It's as if the map were inscribed in the Pyramid of Cheops, its elements displayed for everyone to see, and for centuries people have read and re-read and deciphered the pyramid, seeking other illusions, other calculations, completely overlooking its incredible splendid simplicity, a masterpiece of innocence, and fiendish cunning. The Templars of Provins were wizards. You pique my curiosity. Would you allow me to see it? I must confess I destroyed everything, the ten pages, the map. I was frightened. You understand, don't you? You mean to tell me you destroyed a document of such importance? I destroyed it. But, as I said, the revelation was of an absolute simplicity. The map is here, and Belbo touched his forehead. For over ten years I've carried it with me. For over ten years I've carried the secret here. And he touched his forehead again. Like an obsession— for I fear the power that would be mine if I put forth my hand and grasped the heritage of the thirty-six invisibles. Now you realize why I persuaded Garamond to publish Isis Unveiled and the History of Magic. I'm waiting for the right contact. Then, more and more carried away by the role he had taken on, and to put Allier definitively to the test, he recited word for word Arsène Lupin's ardent speech at the conclusion of L'Aiguille Creuse. There are moments when my power makes my head swim. I am drunk with dominion. Come now, dear friend, Allier said. What if you have given excessive credence to the daydreams of some fanatic? Are you sure the text was authentic? Why don't you trust my experience in these matters? If you only knew how many revelations of this sort I've heard in my life, and how many proved with my help to be unfounded— I can boast some expertise, at least, modest, perhaps, but precise, in the field of historical cartography. Dr. Allier, Belbo said, you would be the first to remind me that once revealed a mystic secret is no longer of any use. I've been silent for years. I can go on being silent. And he was silent. Allier, too, rogue or not, performed his role in earnest. He had spent his life amusing himself with impenetrable secrets, so he was quite convinced that Belbo's lips would be sealed forever. At that point Gudrun came in and told Belbo that the Bologna meeting had been set for Wednesday at noon. "'You can take the morning intercity,' she said. "'Delightful train, the intercity,' Allier said. "'But you should reserve a seat, especially at this season.' Belbo said that even if you boarded at the last moment you could find something, perhaps in the dining car where they served breakfast. "'I wish you luck, then,' Allier said. "'Bologna, beautiful city, but so hot in June.' I'll be there only two or three hours. I have to discuss a text on ancient inscriptions. There are problems with the illustrations. Then he fired his big gun. I haven't had my vacation yet. I'll take it around the summer solstice. I may make up my mind to... <laughs> you understand me. And I rely on your discretion. I've spoken to you as a friend. I can keep silent even better than you. In any case, I thank you, most sincerely, for your trust and Allier left. From this encounter Belbo emerged confident, total victory of his astral narrative over the wretchedness and shame of the sublunar world. The next day he received a phone call from Allier. You must forgive me, dear friend, I have encountered a small contretemps. You know that in a modest way I deal in antique books. This evening I am to receive from Paris a dozen bound volumes, eighteenth century of a certain value, and I absolutely must deliver them to a correspondent of mine in Florence tomorrow. 
I would take them myself, but another engagement detains me here. I thought of this solution. You are going to Bologna. I'll meet you at your train tomorrow, ten minutes before you leave, and hand you a small suitcase. You put it on the rack over your seat and leave it there when you arrive in Bologna. You might wait and get off last to be sure no one takes it. In Florence, my correspondent will board the train while it's standing in the station and collect the suitcase. It's a nuisance for you, I know, but if you could render me this service, I'd be eternally grateful. Gladly, Balbo replied. But how will your friend in Florence know where I've left the suitcase? I have taken the liberty of reserving a seat for you, seat number 45, car 8. It's reserved as far as Rome, so no one else will occupy it in Bologna or in Florence. You see, in exchange for the inconvenience I'm causing you, I'll make sure that you will travel comfortably and not have to make do in the dining car. I didn't dare buy your ticket, of course, not wanting you to think I meant to discharge my indebtedness in such an indelicate fashion. A real gentleman, Belvo thought. He'll send me a case of rare wine to drink his health. Yesterday I wanted to dispatch him to the bowels of the earth, and now I'm doing him a favor. Anyway, I could hardly refuse. Wednesday morning, Belbo went to the station early, bought his ticket to Bologna, and found Allier standing beside car eight with the suitcase. It was fairly heavy, but not bulky. Belbo put the suitcase above seat number forty-five and settled down with his bundle of newspapers. The news of the day was Berlinguer's funeral. A little later, a bearded gentleman came and occupied the seat next to his. Belbo thought he had seen the man before. With hindsight, he thought it might have been at the party in Piedmont, but he wasn't sure. When the train left, the compartment was full. Belbo read his paper, but the bearded passenger tried to strike up conversations with everybody. He began with remarks about the heat, the inadequacy of the air conditioning, the fact that in June you never knew whether to wear summer things or between-seasons clothing. He observed that the best was a light blazer, just like Belbo's, and he asked if it was English. Belbo said yes, it was English, from Burberry's, and resumed his reading. They're the best, the gentleman said, but yours is particularly nice because it doesn't have those gold buttons that are so ostentatious. And, if I may say so, it goes very well with your maroon tie. Belbo thanked him and reopened his paper. The gentleman went on talking with the others about the difficulty of matching ties with jackets, and Belbo continued reading. I know, he thought, they all think me rude, but I don't take trains to establish human relationships. I have too much of that as it is. Then the gentleman said to him, What a lot of papers you read, and of every political tendency. You must be a judge or a politician. Belbo replied that he was neither, but worked for a publishing firm that specialized in books on Arab metaphysics. He said this in the hope of terrifying his adversary, and the man was obviously terrified. Then the conductor arrived. He asked Belbo why he had a ticket for Bologna and a seat reserved to Rome. Belbo said he had changed his mind at the last moment. How lucky you are, the bearded gentleman said, to be able to make such decisions according to how the wind blows without having to count pennies. I envy you. Belbo smiled and looked away. There, he said, now they all think I'm either a spendthrift or a bank robber. At Polonia, Belbo stood up and prepared to get off. Don't forget your suitcase, his neighbor said. No, a friend will collect it in Florence, Belbo said. For that matter, I'd be grateful if you'd keep an eye on it. I will, the bearded gentleman said. Rest assured. Belbo returned to Milan toward evening, shut himself in his apartment with two cans of meat and some crackers, and turned on the TV. More Berlinguer, naturally. The news item about the train appeared at the end, almost as a footnote. 
Late that morning on the intercity between Bologna and Florence, a bearded gentleman had voiced suspicions after a passenger got off in Bologna, leaving a suitcase on the luggage rack. True, the passenger had said someone would pick it up in Florence, but wasn't that what terrorists always said? Furthermore, why had he reserved his seat to Rome when he was getting off in Bologna? A heavy uneasiness spread among the other travelers in that compartment. Finally, the bearded passenger said he couldn't bear the tension. It was better to make a mistake than to die, and he alerted the chief conductor. The chief conductor stopped the train and called the railway police. The train was stopped in the mountains. The passengers milled anxiously along the tracks. The bomb squad arrived. The experts opened the suitcase and found a timer and explosive set for the hour of arrival in Florence, enough to wipe out a few dozen people. The police were unable to find the bearded gentleman. Perhaps he had changed cars and got off in Florence because he didn't want to end up in the newspapers. The police were appealing to him to get in touch with them. The other passengers remembered with unusual precision the man who had left the suitcase. He must have looked suspicious at first sight. He was wearing a blue English jacket without gold buttons, a maroon necktie. He was taciturn and seemed to want to avoid attracting attention at all costs. But he had let slip the information that he worked for a paper or a publisher or for something having to do, the witness's testimony varied, with physics, methane, or metempsychosis. But Arabs were definitely involved. Police stations and Carabinieri headquarters had been alerted. Anonymous phone calls were already coming in and being sifted by the investigators. Two Libyan citizens had been detained in Bologna. A police artist had made a sketch, which now occupied the whole screen. The drawing didn't resemble Belbo, but Belbo resembled the drawing. Belbo, plainly, was the man with the suitcase. But the suitcase had contained Allier's books. He called Allier. There was no answer. It was already late in the evening. He didn't dare leave the house, so he took a pill to get some sleep. The next morning he called Allier again. Silence. He went out to buy the papers. Luckily the front page was still occupied by the funeral. The story about the train and the copy of the police sketch must be somewhere inside. He skulked back to his apartment, his collar turned up, then realized he was still wearing the blazer. At least he didn't have on the maroon tie. While he was trying once more to sort out what had happened, he received a call. A strange foreign voice, a slightly Balkan accent, mellifluous. A completely disinterested party acting out of pure kindness of heart. Poor Signor Belbo, the voice said, finding yourself compromised by such an unpleasant business. You should never agree to act as someone else's courier without first checking the contents of the package. How awful it would be if someone were to inform the police that Signor Belbo was the unidentified occupant of seat number forty-five. Of course, that extreme step could be avoided if Belbo would only agree to cooperate, if he were to say, for example, where the Templar's map was. And since Milan had become hot, because everyone knew the intercity terrorist had boarded the train there, it would be prudent to deal with the matter in neutral territory, for example, Paris. Why not arrange to meet at the Librairie Sloan, 3 Rue de la Manticore, in a week's time? but perhaps Belbo would be better advised to set off at once before anybody could identify him. Library Sloan, 3 Rue de la Mentecourt. At noon on Wednesday, June 20th, he would find there a familiar face, that bearded gentleman with whom he had conversed so cordially on the train. The bearded gentleman would tell Belbo where to find other friends, and then, gradually, in good company, in time for the summer solstice, Belbo would tell what he knew, and the business would be concluded without any trauma. Rue de la Manticore, number three, easy to remember.